Thank you, Nils, Amy, and Paul. They are the Rural Alberta Advantage. Hello once again, everyone, and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and every week we take a nostalgic and hopefully informative trip back in time to examine and enjoy the news taking place in the hockey and sporting worlds 50 years ago this week. As usual, this week's episode is brought to you by Newspapers.com, the world's largest online newspaper archive, and by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in Port Colvern, Ontario. They produce the finest craft beers in the Niagara region and some of the best pub food on the planet. You can't go wrong with the weekly burger and pizza specials. They're really gourmet delights. Last week's show, we talked about the worsening situation over Canada's use of professionals at the 1970. World Hockey Championship and a couple of high-profile job dismissals in the NHL. Now this time around, we're covering the week of December 22nd to 29th, 1969, and there's a lot of news to get to over uh, this period of time. Some of the stories that are making headlines this week were a possible new owner again for the Oakland Seals, and we wonder if they'll ever get it right out there. Uh, Canada's national team enjoyed some unexpected success against the touring Russian nationals. There's also more this week on the Boston Bruins move to uh, have a rule implemented in the National Hockey League where all players must wear helmets. And there's a scoop from a Buffalo hockey writer on who will lead that city's new National Hockey League franchise. Of course, we have the usual news, notes, and items from around the hockey world and our Hockey Personality of the Week. So let's get to it. Now first up, we have a story that has got a source of no less than National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell, who says that there could be a new owner of the financially strapped Oakland Seals franchise by Christmas. The Seals apparently permanently in financial distress, will discover that the new owner would be the Cinecom Corporation of New York. They're expected to announce that its directors have approved acquisition of transnational communications for an exchange of stock priced probably around $4 million. Transnational assumed control of the seals last spring in alliance with Northrop and Seymour Knox, of Buffalo. Now, as everyone knows, the Knox brothers have recently acquired a National Hockey League franchise for Buffalo, and part of the awarding of that franchise deal would be that they must divest themselves of their 20% ownership stake in the Seals. Now, the NHL has been really sensitive to any conflict of interest charges since the years in the 50s and 60s when the Norris family had pieces of franchise in Chicago. Detroit, and New York, thus earning the nickname for the NHL of the Norris House League. Terms of the merger are reported to involve an exchange of four shares of Transnational for one of Cinecom. Transnational, which has about 1 million shares outstanding, will get 250,000 Cinecom shares, and they are valued, as we said, at about $4 million. Now, you remember Transnational. That's the conglomerate that in, in... uh, involves such celebrities as New York Yankees pitcher Whitey Ford, football announcer Pat Summerall. 
Now, Cinecom is an over-the-counter stock traded out in New York, and the president of the corporation is a fellow named Barry Yellen. Cinecom owns a circuit of about 80 movie theaters, two film distributing companies, and a graphic arts firms. Transnational, also traded over-the-counter, has interest in the Seals, the Boston Celtics of the NBA, and a radio network with rights to broadcasting football games by the New York Giants and the New York Jets. Transnational also claims proprietorship of a television film production company, a radio station in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and a small bank in the town of Philadelphia, New York. Ellis Woody Erdman is chair of the board of the Transnational. William N. Creasy, the president, has represented the SEALs on the NHL Board of Governors. Now, some of the people who've owned the SEALs over the last few years, George Flaherty, Barry Van Gerbig, Potter Palmer III, George Gillette, John O'Neill, Erdman, and of course, the Knox Brothers. Also going on this week was a tour by the Russian national hockey team. It started off rush when they arrived in, in uh, Canada, actually in Toronto. The Canadian government sent no one to greet the team and they were upset. The uh, A large trophy that was to be presented to Canada's national team for finishing second in a Moscow tournament earlier this fall will not be presented because the Russians are a little miffed that they weren't given a hero's welcome in Canada. So they're keeping the trophy themselves. Now, there were some interesting games in Canada's national team. Really surprised a lot of people. On Saturday, the 21st of December, uh, they bounced back from a 9-3 trouncing in Vancouver to defeat the Russians 5-1 at Memorial Arena before a crowd of 5388 that's uh, not a big arena in Victoria. And so that was a pretty good crowd for that place, just about sold out. The result, even that exhibition series between the teams at two games apiece, and that's a surprising result thus far. This is pretty much the A team that the Russians have brought, although the goaltenders are not well named. They have a kid named Vladislav Tretyak, who's only 18 years old, looks like he's got good reflexes, uh, has an interesting style, and another fellow that we haven't heard of before, and we don't know whether we'll ever hear of him again. Uh, veteran center Billy Harris and goalie Wayne Stevenson have been the heroes for Canada, and they were in Victoria. Harris scored a goal and had three assists to uh, have four points out of the, the uh, five Canadian goals. And Stevenson was just outstanding, giving up only a goal in the final eight minutes of play. Uh, Corby Adams, Brian Conacher, Michelle Poirier, and Chuck Lefley had the other uh, Canadians' goals. Vyacheslav Starshinov scored the goal for Russia in that game. In the 7-3 loss that Canada had on Saturday... Uh, attendance in Vancouver was 13,157, a pretty fair turnout for what's basically an exhibition game in which uh, nobody expected Canada to be very competitive. Now, that game was a rough one. It produced numerous scuffles and uh, one actual fight between little Fran Huck and another Russian player who's not their biggest guy, Valerie Harlamov. Harlamov, however, besides being small, is tough and he knows how to wield the lumber. Now, all the players on the ice paired off, and it looked like it could degenerate into a really tough situation. 
but Alexander Rags Ragulin, he's the veteran Russian defenseman who's basically their policeman if there is such a thing on a Russian team. He moved in and he seemed to calm everybody down and the players dispersed without much more of an incident. Now in that game, the Canadian goaltender was Cornell graduate Ken Dryden, who's of Toronto, Ontario. He faced 44 Russian shots, and if you know the Russians, they don't shoot until they have a clear-cut scoring chance. So 44 shots by a Russian team means they were really dominant, and they must have had probably 40 outstanding uh, scoring chances. And Dryden, despite giving up seven goals, was pretty good in goal for the Canadians. He came up with saves on several, several tough shots, and he actually kept the score from getting into double digits. The Russians then moved on to Ottawa for a December 23rd game against the Ottawa 67s. Now, this junior A team from Ontario was augmented with other players from the OHA Junior A League and also a couple of minor pros such as Pierre Jerry, who was playing in the Central League but formerly played for the 67s as recently as last season. The Russians won the game by a lopsided score of 8-3. to three. It really was no contest in all facets of the game except the roughness. The Canadians really took it to the Russians the best they could. Got to remember, though, these this is a team of players mostly under 20 years old, and these Russians, most of them have been around for at least five years in international hockey and some for a great deal longer. Two players in Russia's team suffered shoulder separations, and it was basically just a turbulent game. Vyacheslav Starshinov and Evgeny Zimin were the principal casualties in a game which degenerated into high-sticking, slugging, and punching match in the third period. Four players, two from each team, were ejected during that third period brawling. That's unusual for an international match, especially an exhibition game. Now, Russian coach Anatoly Tarasov, back in control of this team, as we've reported the last couple of weeks, said through an interpreter, next time we'll bring over our boxing team. The 67s... Uh, uh, had a crowd of about 6,500 in the Ottawa Civic Center, and that's an arena that seats 10,000. So the, the turnout really wasn't as good as a lot of people expected it might be. Now, Zimmon, he, he, uh, he's a really speedy forward. He scored three goals for the Russians before he was hurt. What happened to him is he tried to crash uh, a defenseman, Paul Cadu of the 67s, but Cadu just stepped out of the side and Zimmon went headfirst into the boards and he had to be assisted to the bench. He later left for the dressing room and his left arm was in a sling. He was definitely the author of his own misfortune on that play and had no right to complain about anything that a Canadian had done. Now, the third period had barely started when Dan Maloney, he's a truculent left winger borrowed from the London Knights of the OHA, tangled with Igor Romanshevsky, the Russian player, after being bumped, swung his stick, and he just missed Maloney's head. Maloney, uh, Dan, if anybody knows what he's like in junior hockey, he takes no guff from anyone. He turned around, started punching, and he gave the Russian a severe beating, bounced him around with several blows to the head. One of his punches knocked Romanoshevsky's helmet off. Both of the guys received majors for fighting, and the Russian also had a minor for high sticking. He came away with the extra with the extra penalty. But both players were thrown out of the game at that point. 
Later in the period, Viktor Polupinov and Kadu had a brief punching match, but when they got off with minor penalties, Ron Kleine of the Hamilton Red Wings then had a brisk bout with Vladimir Mikhailov. He's a veteran winger from the Russians. Only Kleine was penalized in that fracas. Later, Kleine, who's really not known to be that rough of a player, became involved in another fight, this time with Russian Vladimir Petrov right in front of the visitors' bench. Petrov also swung at referee Wilson, and Klimy and Petrov were thrown out of the game then, getting Klimy out of the game, the, the officials hoped, would uh, calm things down a little bit. The goaltenders for Canada in this game were Michelle Rock, who plays for Ottawa, and Dan Bouchard, he's London's goalie. They played really well in a game despite splitting the duties and giving up eight goals. After the game, the captain of the Soviet national team, that's Starshinov, uh, he was interviewed by several Moscow newspapers, and he said that Canadian players tried to threaten us by open fighting. But he added, we can take care of ourselves. Now, Starshinov and Zimin had been returned to Moscow after the game for treatment of their shoulder injuries. Uh, they were asked for the reasons about some of their defeats in Canada, and this is what Starshinov had to say. The judgment of Canadian referees was especially non-objective. Many penalties given to Soviet players were clearly incorrect. He also complained that organizers were sometimes cunning in their arrangements. He cited a situation in which the Soviet team played Canada in Vancouver and on the following day played the same team again in nearby Victoria. He said that the Vancouver game ended late at night, but we had to get up in time for a 6 o'clock flight the next morning. Now, the flight to Victoria took only about 20 minutes, he said, and the Canadian team slept in until noon and then took a ferry boat over to Victoria and arrived just in time for the game, well rusted. Typical Russian whining when they played the Canadians. So next it was off to Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto for a Boxing Day game against Canada's national team and a boisterous crowd of 15,614 watched the Canadians get some unbelievable goaltending from young Wayne Stevenson to edge the Russians 3-2, goaltending the major difference in this game. Vladislav Tretiak, the Russian goalie, looked competent. He wasn't tested severely, but the three goals that beat him were pretty well routine shots. Of course, uh, Stevenson was the star of the game. He, uh, he was kept busy all the time, mainly because the Canadians just couldn't get the puck out of their own zone. They had trouble all night trying to get the puck past the Russian forechecking they only managed to score three goals and it was only Tretiak's uh, sort of lackadaisical play that allowed the score to be that high for the Canadians. Canadians' goals were scored by Fran Huck, Barry McKenzie, and Billy Hindle. Now, Brian Conacher, he's a former pro with the Maple Leafs and Red Wings. He's regained his amateur status and he played for the Canadians. He was interviewed by Dick Bettles of the Toronto Globe and Mail after the game. And here's a few of the things he told Bettles. He said that uh, uh, it always comes down to great goaltending in tight games, doesn't it? 
a Bauer, Sachuk, and the Stanley Cuff, stuff like that. Well, Stevenson was the guy today. Stevenson held us in the first period, Conacher said. We got even in the second. Then I thought we took away the Russians' game in the third. Conacher went on to say that Canada always seemed to lose a lot of big games in the last 10 minutes, but tonight, on the other hand, we commanded the last 10 minutes. If we stay on top of them, they don't have time to organize. That's uh, Brian Conacher. Now, another fellow who uh, knows a bit about international hockey is Steve Berklesich, who scouts potential Russian immigrants for the New York Rangers, and he believes he has the secret for beating Russian teams. Here's what Steve had to say. Forechecking, like it's done in the NHL, would baffle the Russians. A Keon or an Ullman or a Henry Richard wouldn't let them start those neat passing patterns in their own zone. Good forechuckers would disrupt those plays. That's how Steve Berklesett says you can beat the Russians. Meanwhile, this week, while all this international hockey was going on, everyone was kind of hoping for a resolution to the impasse that seems to be taking over the international hockey scene regarding Canada's use of professionals in the 1970 World Championships were to be held, that are to be held in Canada. Uh, The Canadians want to use their professionals or former professionals, minor professionals, whatever you want to call them, guys who get paid to play. Russia and Sweden are among two teams that say they don't want that to happen. There's a meeting scheduled to take place next week in Geneva, Switzerland, Canada is not invited to that meeting, as we mentioned, and that uh, does not bode well for the future of this tournament. If that meeting were to decide that Canada can't use their pros, Canada probably will pull out of the tournament, which will then be cancelled and moved to Sweden. So it's Christmas week this week, and you would think maybe that the NHL teams would be preoccupied with holiday celebrations, but that's not the case. The NHL teams were busy, busy, busy with a lot of things going on. Now, you remember last week we talked about the Philadelphia Flyers firing general manager Norman Bud Poyle, who had been in charge of the team since its inception. This week, they named his replacement. It's not a surprise. They promoted from within, and it's former head coach Keith Allen. He uh, was named to succeed his friend Bud Poyle. Uh, Keith had been the coach of the Flyers up until this season when he was sort of relieved of his duties actually kicked upstairs to become assistant general manager so the Flyers could bring in tough Vic Stasiuk from the Quebec Aces of their American Hockey League farm team. Stasiuk's having middling success. Poyle there, they were blaming for the team not advancing talent-wise. So he was booted and Allen has been hired. Ed Snyder, board chairman of the Flyers, said he signed Allen to a contract which extends through the 1972-73 season. Now, Snyder said that Allen received a substantial salary increase, but he didn't mention any salary. The 46-year-old Allen will oversee the Flyers' operation, including the farm teams, right up to uh, their players coming out of junior. Poyle, of course, was dismissed last Friday for what Snyder said were basic differences in policy between the general manager 
and the club's owners. We'll see how Keith Allen will do in this job. Allen is well-respected throughout the hockey world, is known as one of the nicest guys around, and we can't see him doing poorly with the Flyers. We think he can probably build the organization into something that maybe in several years might have enough talent to compete with the Eastern teams for the Stanley Cup, but that, of course, remains to be seen. Well, the news, as far as injuries goes, doesn't get much better for the Montreal Canadiens. Henry Richard, he's in his 15th National Hockey League season with the Habs, will be lost to the club for two or three weeks because he cracked the bone in his left ankle. Richard, he's 33 now, suffered the injury when he was hit by a shot in the first period in Montreal's 5-2 win over the Boston Bruins last Saturday. He left the game, was unable to return, and now he's going to be gone for two to three weeks. There's been no word from the Habs yet on who they might call up from their AHL Montreal team to replace the injured center. Now, uh, now this is a story that we've been uh, following the last few weeks, and it involves a, a National Hockey League general manager and coach and an ongoing feud with a referee. The referee, of course, is John Ashley, and if you've been a fan of hockey through the 60s, you've seen Ashley's work. There isn't a team in hockey that hasn't whined about Ashley's officiating, but somehow this guy, who was never good enough as a player to get above the American Hockey League in the early 50s, continues to be allowed to officiate National Hockey League games. Scotty Morrison, he's the chief National Hockey League referee, said yesterday he'd look into charges against one of his men, but he wants a league to have words with the man who made the charges. The criticism of referee John Ashley was made... Uh, by Jack Riley, general manager of the Pittsburgh Penguins, who said the official was biased in favor of Eastern Division teams. And if you've watched the games, it's hard not to have that opinion. He outlined his protest in a letter to NHL President Clarence Campbell and told sports writers exactly how he feels about Ashley. Now Morrison says, I haven't seen the letter. I understand it went to Mr. Campbell. It should have come directly to me. Riley knows better than this. Riley probably didn't want to send a letter to Morrison because he's watched him over the last few years basically sweep officiating complaints under the rug. Morrison backs his men 100%. We'll hear of no criticism about referees in the league. And so Riley, quite understandably, decided to go over the referee-in-chief's head directly to the league president to see if he could get something done about Ashley. Riley said last Friday that Ashley seems to feel there are just six teams in the league, the six in the Eastern Division, and that all the others don't belong. We've never defeated an East Division team when he was refereeing, although we played some very good games. Now Morrison, uh, upset at any criticism of his men, was critical of Penguins coach Red Kelly, who said that his goalie Al Smith was tired after he had that fight with Terry Harper or J.C. Tromley wouldn't have scored the go-ahead goal. Kelly was referring to Pittsburgh's 5-2 loss in Montreal. That was about a week before all this took place. Now Kelly said he can't fight with 40 pounds of equipment on him without tiring. Kelly's referring to the fact that several Montreal players constantly ran at goalie Smith in the net. Smith finally felt he had to defend himself. And if you know Al Smith, 
he's not shy about dropping the gloves and throwing a few. Now, Morrison was scornful of Kelly's comment. He said, how's that Ashley's fault? The fight was in front of the Montreal goal, and Smith had to skate the length of the ice to get into it. Well, that may be true, but he probably felt when he saw his players uh, engaging in fisticuffs that it was time to send a message of his own. We don't know for sure, of course, what Al was thinking. He likes to fight. He likes to get in there. But Kelly's comments are probably very valid, given Montreal-style play around the opposing goal. We'll see how this works out. Well, out of Vancouver, good, good news. It became official this week. Metacore has taken over the Vancouver Canucks franchise. That's in the Western Hockey League and thus next season in the NHL. Tom Scallon, president of Metacore, signed the final document this week, which gave his corporation majority ownership of the Vancouver Canucks and the right to provide the financing required to pay the National Hockey League's $6 million expansion price tag. With Scallon's signature, Metacore fell heir to Vancouver's Western Hockey League franchise, Rochester's American Hockey League franchise, and they gained ownership of 51 professional hockey players. That gives them a huge leg up on the Buffalo expansion team, which through their Bison's AHL club owns a total of three players. Now, Scallon said on the hiring of staff that Joe Crozier, the Canucks' current coach and general manager, is a candidate. Now, Scallon said the fact that the team is in first place in the Western League indicates that he's a strong candidate, but we're also going to talk to Punchinlack and several other qualified men. Scallon said, we want to come up with the best possible combination for all jobs that are available. We've made no judgments so far on anyone. Vancouver Province uh, sports reporter Tom Watt also spoke to Scallon and he asked him about how the team was going to be run. Scallon named no names, but he said the club will be run by a man who believes, one, in developing the most comprehensive scouting system in the NHL. Scallon believes that scouting is the key to building a team, especially when you're working from the bottom up with a brand new franchise. He says his man will believe in using specialized coaching methods, such as those used in professional baseball and football. Now, what that means is for the first time in hockey, we may have a system of multiple coaches, probably with a one man in charge and specialists like they did in Los Angeles, where Doug Harvey was named to coach the defense. Johnny Wilson is the head coach and coaches the offense. Scallon also wanted to assure Vancouver fans that this will not be some fly-by-night situation. Indirectly, he may have been referring to how the Oakland Seals have been in trouble since the start. Scallon says they're planning uh, for a long-term success in Vancouver. He told Tom Watt, What we want to make perfectly clear is that we consider our investment in Vancouver as an extremely, and I emphasize the word extremely, good one. We are not quick buck artists. We don't expect to get our money back this year. We are here for life. We, and he's referring to Metacore, expect to make considerable investments in Canada, and we will do so from our headquarters 
in Vancouver. Now, he talked about uh, his job in relation to the ice follies, which uh, Metacor owns. Tom said, in the ice follies, we have a scouting system where we have a file on every 12-year-old amateur skater on the continent. If it can work in the ice follies, why can't it work in hockey? Now, this means that the, the Canucks will probably have a very extensive scouting staff, and they'll be looking at kids probably as young as 12 years old. They're doing it already, although it's not a formal system in the NHL. Up until the time this new amateur draft started, teams had bird dogs all over Canada. And you might have a fellow who sees a 12-year-old in Perry Sound get a hold of a fellow like Bob Davidson of the Maple Leafs and say, you got to have a look at this kid. He's only 10. He's going on 11, but he looks like he's got a future in hockey. Then it's up to the teams to go and send the real scouts in to look at these guys. He also said that uh, Vancouverites would not pay as high a price for tickets as they do in many NHL cities. And he said that the lowest prices will not be as low as, say, in Boston, where you can get a seat to a game for a buck and a half. Uh, Tom said, we'll not have a $1.50 seat. There is no way we can afford that. He pointed out that the $1.50 seats in Boston are so bad that the ticket holders can't see a lot of the action. Another thing that uh, Tom Watt asked Scallon about was the name of the hockey team. This has been a bit of a, a prickly subject for people in Vancouver uh, after Lyman Walters, the vice president of Manicor, said he didn't like the name Canucks. Well, Tom says that he personally likes the Canucks name. I like the connotation of Johnny Canuck, the fighting man of Canada, and I'm old enough to have been in a war, so I know what that means. He did say he didn't like the Canucks crest, which features a bearded lumberjack on skates, but he didn't say what would replace that. We'll probably see something maybe a little modernized on the Canucks jerseys if they do adopt the Canucks name. In our last episode and in Twitter this week, we reported about the Bruins uh, making a motion with the National Hockey League Rules Committee to force all National Hockey League players to wear helmets in all games. Well, Stan Fischler, New York hockey reporter who has lots of stories and sometimes a few facts, reports that Bobby Orr and Derek Sanderson have spearheaded a Bruins helmet revolt. Now, that's embellishment a bit on Fischler's part. It's not a full-scale revolt, but let's uh, read what Fischler's story has to say. You can judge for yourself. Fischler says the Bruins are close to open revolt over a move made by the club's board chairman to make them wear helmets in National Hockey League games. Derek Sanderson says there is absolute and total rejection of the idea among his teammates. Fischler quotes Sanderson saying, I'm not going to wear a helmet, and if they passed a rule making helmets compulsory, I'd have to balk at the whole thing. Now, he indicated many of his teammates, including Bobby Orr, would follow suit. There are enough guys on the team who are willing to take a stand, and I'm certainly not alone in this. Sanderson singled out right winger Ed Westfall and all-star defenseman Orr as among those especially opposed to the helmet plan. Sanderson is reported to have said, the management tried to force all our defensemen to wear them in a practice, and the guys walked out on them. 
Sanderson said Orr's firm anti-helmet position at least temporarily thwarted the program. Thwarted the program so much that Weston Adams went to the league to get it made mandatory. Sanderson said when Bobby Bach, the management decided not to push the matter. But they did anyway, didn't they? Now, Don Horry began wearing a helmet after Ted Green was injured when he suffered a fractured skull in that stick-swinging duel last September in an exhibition game. He was the first to do so on a team that prided itself on being the only club in the NHL last season without a single player wearing headgear. Sanderson said Horry stopped wearing it pretty soon because he didn't like it. One of the troubles is that there isn't a helmet around and that's designed good enough for a player to wear. They're uncomfortable and they can shatter when they're hit. Besides, if helmets were mandatory, they provoke more stick fights than there are today. Sanderson said that vanity is also one of the factors involved in players not wanting to wear helmets. He says, personally, I think I look terrible in a helmet. The thing he explained is not to force players to wear them. Then maybe in time, some would. It has to be a matter of choice. Now, Sanderson was asked what he would do if the NHL Rules Committee approved the Adams mandatory helmet motion. He shook his head and apparently said to Fischler, for me, it would be the beginning of the end. Of course it would, Derek. More court news for Ted Green and Wayne Mackey out of Ottawa, where they've been charged with assault-causing bodily harm over that stick-swinging duel last September in the exhibition game in Ottawa. New summonses for assault will be issued against Mackey and Green, who did not appear in court on December 18th uh, on advice of their counsel. They were scheduled for arraignment on that date, but As we said, the the lawyers told them not to show up. The judge would not arraign them. Crown Attorney John Castles told Judge J.T. Bolney today that he had examined the case rather than have warrants issued for the accused who did not appear, and he would ask for new summonses. The new summonses would require both men to appear in court on February 16th. Now, Green is presently recuperating at his Winnipeg home from two operations for depressed skull fracture. Mackey is playing for the Buffalo Bisons of the American Hockey League, but he's still property of the St. Louis Blues. A neat little item out of Chicago today. Ted DeMata, the hockey writer for the Chicago Tribune, says that instead of the aviation nickname, the Golden Jet, Bobby Hull is now being referred to as the bald eagle. Bobby's hair loss has become quite pronounced, and a lot of fans are riding the golden jet on that fact. Dematis says that he asked Bobby about the new nickname, and he said he'll never wear a rug. He's not going to have fake hair. We'll see how that makes out. Bobby's a vain guy. I'll bet you if they could find something that Bobby would approve of, He'd probably uh, alter his appearance. He's a vain guy, as we said, and he wants an image to be upheld. There was a meeting in Cleveland this week, 
And this was about the expansion franchise going into Buffalo. Like the Western Hockey League, the American Hockey League is demanding indemnification for the NHL going into their Buffalo territory. Uh, There was a meeting in Cleveland between uh, Robert O. Suarez, who represents the Knox brothers from Buffalo, and the brass from the AHL. No agreement uh, could uh, be arranged to have the Buffalo team pay a fee to the AHL, probably because the AHL is asking for a fee similar to that of the Western Hockey League's ask of the Canucks. And that is about $1.2 million. Uh, this, this isn't going to be resolved anytime soon, but we're hoping that something will happen. Now, both the presidents of the minor league uh, teams, the Western and American Hockey Leagues, say that the conditions of NHL expansion stipulate that both new teams must pay the indemnification fees before they will be awarded the franchises. Clarence Campbell, president of the NHL, and the representatives in Buffalo and Vancouver say no such clause exists in the expansion agreement, and that is something that the parties will have to work out on their own. Now, it seems every uh, couple of weeks or so, we read a story or we report on here about uh, other NHL teams complaining about the behavior of fans in the St. Louis arena. Latest to jump on that bandwagon is Walter Bush, president of the Minnesota North Stars. Uh, He had some words for the St. Louis management for uh, a game uh, last week in in St. Louis, and they were not in the holiday spirit. The Minnesota president was angry over a game this week in St. Louis and the treatment the Stars and their players received from the St. Louis crowd. The game was held up at one point while Lou Nanny and Jean-Paul Parise of the North Stars and several other players struggled with a heckler in a nearby seat. Now, Bush wasn't at the game. He was watching at home on television, and he became so upset, he attempted right then and there to place a telephone call to Sid Solomon III, the Blues president, at the St. Louis Arena during the game. He couldn't get Solomon, of course, or Solomon wouldn't take a call. So then he talked to NHL President Clarence Campbell to voice a, quote, severe protest. Bush said this has been going on down there for too long. It's tough. It's tough having to play their team without having to take on the fans as well. It's not fair, 16 guys against 15,000. There's no police protection on the visiting bench, and there's no insulation whatever from the fans. They just raise hell with our team all night, calling them names and such. Uh, Bush said that an incident of one type or another has marked nearly every Minnesota visit, including a couple of times when beer has been thrown in players' faces, and that is crossing the line. Well, the next day, Sid Solomon Jr. of the St. Louis Blues disputed the claim by the North Stars president. He says none of our fans swore at anybody on the Minnesota bench. There was one guy riding the North Stars when J.P. Parise suddenly grabbed the stick, started after him, and the fan lunged at him. Solomon said he was told by a fan in the area that Minnesota coach Ren Blair 
used profanity during the incident, but no fans did. Nobody swore? Ren Blair swore? Really? Would he do that? If you ever heard the bird off camera, off mic, uh, you would think that's a distinct possibility. Well, on December 27th, Charlie Barton of the Buffalo Courier Express, he did it again. He had another scoop, and he said that George Punchimlack, former general manager coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs, would definitely be named the new general manager of the Buffalo National Hockey League team sometime before January 20th, which is the NHL All-Star Game. Now, he contacted Robert Swadis, vice president and spokesman for the Niagara Frontier Hockey Corporation, and uh, Robert would not comment. He didn't deny the report, but of course, he could not confirm. Charlie said that his source only said that Imlac would be general manager, and he did not know who would coach the club. Imlac is right now being paid about $51,000 for not managing and coaching the Maple Leafs at this time. Now, there are unconfirmed reports that Imlac has turned down jobs from the Los Angeles Kings, Pittsburgh Penguins, and we do know for sure that he rejected a coaching offer from the Minnesota North Stars. At the very same time, Hans Tanner, he's the sports uh, hockey writer for the Rochester Chronicle and Democrat, said that he has learned that Joe Crozier would be named the general manager of the Vancouver entry. He didn't say who would be coaching the Vancouver club, and he thought it would be very strange if Crozier and Imlac weren't an entry somewhere together, but he also confirmed that uh, Barton's reporting that Imlac would be taking over the Buffalo franchise. So now the only thing we're waiting for is announcements in each of those two cities to see how the positions will be formally filled. Should happen sometime after Christmas, I think. And we get to our Hockey Personality of the Week now. And it is New York Rangers General Manager Coach Emil the Cat Francis. Now the Cat has spent a lifetime in hockey and he was profiled this week in 1969 in the New York Daily News by esteemed sports writer Phil Pep. Uh, here's some of uh, Phil's comments and we wanted to bring these on to you just, just to show how people actually felt about Emil Francis in New York at this time. He was uh, rapidly approaching the pinnacle of his work in New York as the Rangers were becoming a very, very, very good team. We'll also have some background about Emil's early life that maybe some people didn't know about. Emil Francis is tough. Emil Francis is hardworking. Emil Francis is fair. Emil Francis is considerate. Emil Francis is knowledgeable. And Emil Francis is fiery and determined. His appearance belies most of those things. He's a small guy, 5'6", 150 pounds, and he looks more like a dropout from the Canadian Air Force bodybuilding program. Now, a lot of people don't know, Francis was drummed out of the Canadian Army, but not for anything negative. He enlisted in the Army by lying about his age at 15 years old, and he was a sergeant by the time he was 16, when the officials suddenly discovered he was underage and they asked him to go back home, which unfortunately, Emil had to do. Now, Emil has been in, spent a, a lifetime in hockey. 
He uh, played in 14 years, 12 cities, got in the 95 NHL games with the Rangers and the Blackhawks. He took 240 stitches, lost 18 teeth, and has a nose that was broken five times. He came to the Rangers in 1964 to work in the management group, and uh, since that time, the Rangers have been on the rebound throughout most of the late 50s and early 60s. They were a bad team, missing the playoffs routinely, but since Francis has been on board, they've been competing for playoff spots, and this year, they're working at competing for the Stanley Cup. Francis told Pep, I've always had a drive to win, and I'll make a winner out of the Rangers, or I will die trying. Francis is generally considered the architect of this New York team, and that began back in 1964 when he made, he was the architect. He was not the full general manager at the time, I don't believe. He was the architect of a deal with the Toronto Maple Leafs that sent Andy Bathgate and Don McKenney to Toronto, but brought back young players like Bob Nevin, Arnie Brown, Rod Sealing, Bill Collins. It was, uh, and Dick Duff came to the uh, Rangers as well. Dick was later turned over to Montreal for Billy Hickey. But that deal and a few other shrewd moves gave the Rangers the young base to begin their ascent in the NHL standings. His philosophy as a general manager, according to Emil, is 90% of winning is desire, and you have to keep pushing, pushing, pushing to create desire to make some guys realize the importance of each game. The cat says nobody wants to be associated with a loser, and it was difficult signing young players until we got that philosophy throughout the entire organization. Phil Pep went to the uh, Rangers players themselves to ask them how they felt about Francis, and the re, uh, reactions to the questions were overwhelmingly positive. Orlin Curtinback said he's a competitor. Don Marshall says New York had no system until Emil Francis came. The players here just did whatever they wanted to do. Marshall was with the Rangers before Francis became associated with the management team, and he speaks with some authority on that subject. Arnie Brown, picked up from the Maple Leafs in the deal we spoke about, said the old era has been forgotten since Emil got here. Vic Hadfield says the fellas have respect for him. He instilled pride in the game. He works hard at his job. Rod Gilbert, of the member of the goal of game line with Hanfield and John Martell, says Emil is responsible for making us a winner. Captain Bob Nevin says the greatest thing that happened is that Emil came in and took over from some people who didn't have much interest in the team. Emil Francis is interested only in the Rangers, and he's interested in the fans of the Rangers. People, he says, don't demand that you win all the time. The thing they insist on is that you give 100% effort all the time, and Francis is adamant his teams will do just that. To Emil Francis, these are not just words, not just a code or a theory. It's his very way of life. And that's this week's uh, Personality of the Week, Emil the Cat Francis, one of the great ones.
So that's our show for this week, everyone. Uh, lots going on again, even though it was a Christmas week. Uh, what did we learn this week? Well, we learned that under the right circumstances, a team made up of mostly Canadian amateur and former pros can skate with the Russians. Can't win all the time, but they can compete. We learned that the Philadelphia Flyers are setting a very good example to all their employees as they like to hire from within when they named Keith Allen a loyal employee as their new general managers. And we learned that Emil Francis is highly regarded around the NHL, but where it really counts, he's very highly regarded with those who work with and under him. Next week, we'll return with a more news and notes from the world of hockey, and some of the stories we're working on include another new coach, this time for the Minnesota North Stars. We'll talk about a, a great Russian coach uh, commenting on the style of play as he sees it in the National Hockey League, and we'll have more on the story where the NHL Rules Committee, spoiler alert here, rejects mandatory helmets for all players. We'll have much, much more as well. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Our intro music comes to us courtesy of the Rural Alberta Advantage, and other musical pieces are by Andy Cole as well. Our stories are compiled with files from the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many publications found at our sponsor newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at 1969HockeyNews, where our daily account produces snippets of the uh, news of the day, and we report in more detail here. We're also on Facebook at our 50 Years Ago in Hockey page, and our WordPress site is Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And now, if you like good music and good conversation, have a listen to the Let's Write a Song podcast by Andy Cole, who produces the show. Uh, each week, Andy and a guest have some interesting conversation, and they also write and perform a completely new musical piece, and it's a lot of fun. That's it for this week, folks. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. When the